Always great to just recount that story. Just the Bible standard for the picture of what God's done for his people. Not just physically bringing them out of bondage there, but bringing us all out of bondage of our sin and uh, setting us free and has really already destroyed every enemy and it'll become more of a reality as time goes on and it will finally come to an end and that's where some of the things we've been looking at in Mark but today I'm skipping out on Mark so turn to John chapter 11 you'll have to give me till next week I'm really battling with this thing in Mark 13 and trying to not be confusing about it and teach it as well as possible and so hopefully next couple of weeks I'll finish that up. And I think what I might do is we'll finish up Mark 13 so I can get on to the next chapter. And then at some point on Wednesday night, we may come back to it and try to really look at it and talk a little bit more about um, views, this and that. It's just very difficult for me to try to do it up here in 30 minutes, you know. And uh, I think it'd be a good time for people, then we can ask questions and go through it together and uh, see if we can find answers, um, which is what we want to do. But John chapter 11 is very familiar, and I'm going to read another long passage to you. So my preaching is going to be short. Since we've read a lot of scripture to you, the actual teaching is going to be shorter. But um, this is long again, but you know the story. But sometimes, again, it's just good to recount these things and look at what the Lord is telling us. Chapter 11, a certain man uh, was ill, John chapter 11. A certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness is, does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you are going there again? And Jesus answered, are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant he was taking a rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin and said, Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found Lazarus was already been, had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. 
And Martha said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. But Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and calling for you. And she, when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could he who opened the eyes of the blind not also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. And many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen him, what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. And if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year, said, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. But did not he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not only for the nation, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. And Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. It's hard not to see the parallels of the Egyptian bondage and the crossing of the sea and Lazarus dead, coming out of the tomb uh, alive, mainly because that was God's desire and plan, and that's what he does. Um, I think it's important to note that when we read about Moses, people like to say, well, you know, Moses parted the Red Sea, but it was clear in the scriptures. Moses lifted his hand and God departed or parted the waters. And so it was here. Jesus spoke and by the power of God, Lazarus came out. 
This is one of the greatest accounts in all scripture, no doubt. It probably is one of my favorites, especially the thought of this man being summoned to the, from the dead, just walking out of the tomb, and what that must have been like to be there and to see that, to see his feet bound and his body bound in all these strips, and probably, as his sister said, not smelling the greatest. He'd been dead for four days. It makes you wonder, or I always wonder, what was Lazarus's first words, right? Or what was the look on his face when he came out of this? And what would he have told us after being dead for four days? And it's probably a good thing that he told us nothing. Uh, there's some things we just don't need to know. There's some things that we couldn't handle if we did know, right? The unknown is, uh, I think, part of, you know, we, we sing a song that talks about right now we see in faith, and we know in faith, but one day we'll our faith will give way to sight. And um, this week, in fact, I was talking with a patient about that very thing. He said, I'm not afraid to die. It's just the unknown. I mean, I don't really know. I know what the Bible says, what little it says about the next life, but it doesn't really tell us about what it's like to pass from here to there and what it's going to feel like. And I said, man, that just that makes you like the rest of us. I mean, and there's probably a reason that God didn't tell us those things. And it causes us to look forward with anticipation, but a little bit of, uh, angst about what is this going to be like, but it also causes us to settle in. Uh, we got to believe this. Jesus did this, and, and, and the Bible says he was only the first fruits. And just like he rose, I'm going to rise too, and I'm going to live beyond this, uh, this grave. And so what an incredible story. Um, Jesus has been teaching, spending time with his disciples. He receives word that Lazarus is dead. This is his friend. And this, is, in fact, is the first time we hear about Lazarus in the Scriptures. And he's only mentioned one other time after this. So, uh, obviously, we're not supposed to be too concerned about who Lazarus was, but more about what uh, Jesus did for him. Brother of Mary and Martha, who we do know a lot about. And, obviously, Jesus loves him very much. Um, when Lazarus fell ill, his sisters were concerned. They sent word to Jesus. We just read... Um, but Jesus, interestingly, right off the bat said, this illness does not lead to death. But then we see that he died. But Jesus had something more in mind than just a physical death. He was trying to point out the fact that God was going to be glorified through this, much like the blind man who we read in the scripture also in John. He was not born blind because of anybody's sin. He was born blind that God may receive the glory, right? So Lazarus is about to die that God could receive glory because he was going to be raised from the dead. And so he was. Um, and it's almost like the, the scripture is trying to make a point to us. Jesus hears that he's sick and he's sick unto death, but Jesus stayed where he was two more days. Almost like to just keep making it just in case we're wondering or anybody there was wondering, this man really was dead. All right? He's completely dead. And the disciples didn't understand that. But then Jesus said to him, I'm glad I wasn't there so that you may believe. So this is about to be a crisis of belief, and it is for a lot of people, not just the disciples, but as we read, many of the other Jews there saw what happened and believed. Martha comes out to meet Jesus, and they both say the same thing. They already understood that in the presence of Jesus, there is no death, right? They understood this. If Jesus, if you'd have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. So they had great faith already in Christ. And Martha uh, 
had a lot of discernment about the resurrection and things that we wouldn't expect maybe her to know about, but she did know about it because the Old Testament speaks about resurrection, right? That's one of the things I hope to point out in the next few weeks from Mark 13. There was a resurrection spoken of, and the New Testament writers understood there was a resurrection coming. They might not have seen everything that we are able to see about it, but they knew there was a resurrection coming. But read all this incredible account. Um, Mary and Martha, speaking to Jesus, Martha understands there's a resurrection in the end. I know my brother will rise again. Jesus says, yeah, but hey, I am the resurrection. I'm not the future resurrection. I am the resurrection. And then the shortest verse in all scripture, right? Did you catch the shortest verse ever? Did you kids hear the shortest verse in the Bible? Two words. Jesus wept, right? Shortest verse in all the Bible. And John includes this, that even the Jews said, see how he loved him? And then, of course, they developed this plot to kill him. Um, and we also read that later they plot to kill Lazarus again. Like being dead four days wasn't enough. Jesus brought him back. They wanted to kill him again. I always laugh when I read that because that's, that's about the best that men can come up with. We killed him, and Jesus brought him back to life. We'll just kill him again. But uh, I think there's there's a main point here. There's a bunch of verses. And uh, I know we've talked about this passage before, but I just want to highlight this and go through it for a minute. Just the sovereignty of God over all things, especially life and death. Just the sovereignty of God over all things. I know we talk about that all the time, but I don't know that we can speak about it too much. Again, I don't want to keep bringing up my job, but I find myself week after week having these conversations. I don't know why you're sick. I don't, I don't know where this, I don't know all the purpose in this, but I have to believe that God is responsible and control of it in some way. People don't like to hear God is responsible, but they're okay here and he's in control of it. So I try to keep that out there. He's in control of it. I can't explain it, but somehow he's going to be glorified. And of course, I have to be speaking to believers or that makes no sense at all. But God uses even the illness and even death to bring glory to himself and to create belief in his children. We can't overlook this. Because as humans, we have a tendency to see all heartache and loss as tragedy. And we also tend to view heartache and loss sometimes as if God had not paid attention, right? Or where was God? Why, why did he let this happen? And again, I don't think that's unnatural. It, it, at least in the, in the very beginning of any tragedy, there's a tendency for us all to think, why? I mean, I don't think that's unnatural. And like Mary and Martha, we might... Think this, because I know you've heard people say this. If there was a God, or if God cared, if Jesus would have cared, he'd have been there, right? Lazarus wouldn't have died if God cared. But the reality is, as much as they knew to be true of Jesus, they should have been living with great anticipation as to what Jesus would do when he did arrive, right? They were more concerned about what he didn't do when they wanted him to do it when he wasn't there, but they weren't as concerned about what he would do when he got there and what he could do. Martha had hope for a future. She knew that Lazarus would rise again. And she believed in the last resurrection, the end day, the day of the Lord. 
But I love what Jesus says here in present tense. But I am the resurrection now, today. Too often, like them, our hope and our fixation is on things and not on Christ. And I'm just as guilty. I look at situations as hopeless way too fast. I think of people sometimes as hopeless, right? I think one of the things that um, my hospice job has done for me is brought me back to the remembrance that people are just people. And Jesus died for people. And there's people from all uh, walks of life, all kinds of socioeconomic situations and backgrounds and things that I don't understand, lifestyles I don't understand. But in all those places, I find people that have been plucked out of sin and death and brought to life by Jesus. And it's just very humbling. And it's a great reminder that the power of the gospel and the salvation, the power of God and salvation is the gospel. Not how we, what kind of churches we have, what kind of elaborate things we can, what kind of shows we can put on. But anybody in any situation, from any lifestyle, can hear the gospel and be saved. And be part of the church. The visible church. I love that. It's pointed out in our catechism. The visible church. The gathered people of God. Church means gathered ones. We speak of the invisible church because not that you can have a church and not be gathered, but the ones we pray for every week. And I hope you saw that too. It's still the gathered people, but it's the ones we can't necessarily be with and see. And not only the ones that are here now, but the ones that have gone on for thousands of years and will go on for thousands of years from now if, if Christ tarries that long, is coming. That's what we mean every week when we confess we believe in the invisible church. We believe that there is a church that we're a part of that we don't necessarily see, but we know it's real. But we are a part of the physical church, the visible church, and God brings people out of death into life and into the church. And you know, I always hear this all the time from people who are saved late in life. People who aren't saved, God doesn't save them until they're sick or till they're near the end. And all of them say to me something that sounds like this. I didn't go to church. I wish I went to church. I didn't get a chance. I can't go now. And so I think it's important for us to remember how blessed we are to be able to gather. And, you know, I don't like to stand up and berate people or even out people I'm talking to, berate them about not being apart or not being in church gathered. But I'm telling you, it's important. It's, it's, a, it's a part of the grace. that It's the way that God imparts grace to us. And I know all of you believe that because you often gather as much as you can. But it's just a good time to think about that. Jesus is the resurrection. And our hope is in him, not in stuff. Not even in our lives and how it's going in our life. If it's going well or if it's going bad, our hope is not in this life. And sometimes, like Martha, we have a tendency to view our Christianity as a past event with future impl implications and fail to see the connection with the present. Jesus is the I am. He is the resurrection. And our hope is not just, I did something years ago, and one day I'm going to heaven. But all this in between here is also the hope. Jesus said, I came to give them life and give it to them abundantly. So my prayer for us all is that we don't 
find ourselves laying around somewhere one day saying, oh, I wish I would have done this. I wish I would have thought more about my, my life in Christ now and not just something in the future. Because sometimes we have a tendency to think, well, I guess what I do doesn't really matter, but it does matter. We've been called to obedience. We've been called to faith. And part of that fact that Christ is the resurrection and that he is the I am, that is speaking to our obedience and our calling now. He is the resurrection the life. He is the bread of life. He is the good shepherd. He is sovereign over all things, yes, life and death. But especially life. He is the God of life, right? He said, I am the God of the living. And he is that in order that he might glorify himself and bring his children not only to faith, but to submission and obedience and faithfulness in life. Now, I know a lot of times we... We try to, we, we do here, steer away from pietism, this idea that, ooh, look at what I can do. Look at how obedient I am. And look at all the rules I follow. That's not a good thing. But the Bible does call us to faithfulness and obedience. And when we fail at that, the Spirit will let us know. And we are not to go into a funk and think, man, I'm just so bad, I'm so pitiful. Because though that is true of all of us apart from Christ, what our disobedience does is drive us back to Christ by the Spirit to put our faith back in Him and know that even our obedience is Christ. Even the good things we do is Him. That doesn't make what we do not count. That means what we do counts for all eternity because what is good in us is Christ. And we have to be concerned about obedience and faithfulness. I mean, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Now, we can definitely all agree that, oh, I'm not able to do that. Well, yeah. But it doesn't change the fact that he said that. So, as God's people with the Spirit in us, we can't disobey his commandments and not feel the guilt from the Lord that these are the things God's called us to. Not a guilt that overshadows you and weighs you down and and beats you up. But it really is a guilt that reminds you, or if it's not even a guilt, it's just a, the Holy Spirit reminding you that you have no guilt. So why are you ashamed of what you are not doing when you can't do it? But Christ did it. So look to Christ and do the things he's called you to because he is who he is. And when you fail, as John said, I write to you that you sin not, but when you do sin... You have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. That's what we do. We go back to him over and over. And I will say that if our theology and our worship doesn't lead to obedience, that's a sad state of theology and worship, right? Our worship and our theology leads us to obedience. Not a perfect obedience, it's not that we should be keeping check marks about it. We just seek God more as, as we fail his commandments and we fail to obey. We seek him more that we might obey. Because we want to. The God who commanded Lazarus to come out of the tomb also commands you and I to live according to his commands. To run after holiness and purity 
to strive to live at peace as best we can, to preach the gospel to all creatures, to love our enemies, to do all things to the glory of God. All those things are our, by the Spirit, they spur us to more righteous living and holiness. Yeah, we fail at it. And I'm not here, I'm not, I'm not trying to throw rocks at you and beat you down over it. I'm telling you, I know, because that's where I live every day. I live recognizing my shortcomings. And it drives me back to the cross, and I'm reminded, but Jesus paid for all those. So my hope, as we just sang, is in Jesus Christ and his righteousness, not mine. But I think that we ought to look at this, and it ought to encourage us. The, the Jesus we follow has the power to call people who've been dead four days to life. And so if this Jesus who can call dead people to life calls us to obedience, then what he calls us to obey, we can obey. For those of you who may be here and you've never professed faith in Christ, I want you to hear this. Lazarus, just like Israel and Egypt and that story we read from Exodus was a picture of a spiritual reality. That really happened. Now, I believe Genesis and Exodus, I believe that those are real stories. I believe God parted the waters. I believe their feet were as dry on one end as it was on the other. And I believe that then God closed the waters up and killed all the Egyptians, just like the Bible says he does. I don't think that's something that's alluding to other spiritual realities but what i'm saying is it does point us to a spiritual reality that god said he would do what it took to get his people out of bondage and he did and he destroyed those who are pursuing them in the same way he has promised to save his people from death and hell and from their sin and he will destroy every enemy including death and that's as good as done when christ died that's a reality that will unfold more and more and more throughout history as it has been doing and will ultimately lead to a new heaven and a new earth. All of us, I want you to hear this, just like Lazarus, all of us come into this world just as good as dead. We are dead. Just as good as stinking four-day-old dead. Spiritually, that's how you are right now or you have been. If you were born into this world and you haven't trusted Christ, you're just as good as Lazarus was in that tomb and you have just as good a chance as doing something to unravel those bindings and come out of that tomb as Lazarus did. He couldn't. Because the Bible says that as Lazarus was physically dead, we come into this world spiritually dead in sin and trespasses. But here's the good and glorious truth. When Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, there wasn't a chance in anything that's ever been that he wasn't coming forth. He was coming out. And I know I pointed this out before when I've talked about this passage, but um, preachers used to say, if he wouldn't have said Lazarus, if he would have just said come forth, every tomb would have been emptied and every grave would have been empty. Everybody would have come to life. But he said, Lazarus, come forth. And so Lazarus come out. And in the same way, he calls to his children now, those who are his sheep, he calls and says, repent, turn from your sin and be saved. And so that's God's call to you today. 
Come to me, you who are laden with burdens, and I will give you rest. And God is doing that for all of those who will hear. And if you can hear that and you can see that Jesus died on the cross for me, then God is calling you out of the tomb, so to speak, to come to life. The Bible says, if you believe in your heart in the Lord Jesus, confess him with your mouth, you shall be saved. Now, I don't think that means, if you'll do that once, God will save you. I think that means, can you look at Christ and believe that he died on the cross and confess that, that, that Jesus is God's son and he died for me? If that's what you believe, then that is a confession of faith. And it's not just something you do one time and then move on. It will be the tenor of your life from now on. You'll have ups and downs. There'll be days when you don't feel like you, you were saved. There'll be days that you feel like there's no way you couldn't be saved. It'll be up and down. But that will be your confession from now on. And if that is who you are, then God says, then be baptized for the remission of sin. Because God has called you forth from death to life and you believe in Christ and he's your savior, then why wouldn't you profess that to the world? And that's what he's calling you to. And if he's calling you, you will come forth and you will be saved. I think it's important to note that even with a great miracle like a dead man, four days being brought to life, Many believed, but did you notice? But some just became more angry. Some believed even less. And I, and I think it's interesting in light of what we're studying in Mark 13, some of the Jews' confession. Hey, if we don't stop this man, everybody's going to believe in him, and the Romans are going to come and take everything we got. Hey, that was only about 30 years away from happening. They were coming to take everything they got, and their only hope was to believe in this one. But they were so spiritually blind, they didn't understand that. And so, don't miss this. There is no salvation apart from Christ. These people died when Rome came. Their, their judgment was coming faster than they realized. And salvation was right in front of them. I mean, the resurrection was standing there. The only one that could get them out even if Rome killed them, they wouldn't destroy them and take their wouldn't take real life from them because they would live forever with God. And so I'm careful to say this, but don't miss don't hear the gospel and turn away from it, thinking that one day I'll do this, one day there'll be something better, or I'll do that later, whatever it is. If if you believe that Christ died for you. Confess that and believe it. And turn from your sin and turn to him and follow him. It won't be perfect. You won't live you won't live like you want to every day. Just ask anybody in here who confesses to be a Christian. It won't always be um, perfection. It won't always be, like they say, a bed of roses. But there'll be times that the Spirit will commune with you that cannot be replaced by any joy on this world, on this earth, Right? There will be moments when the Spirit will let you know that you belong to Him and there's nothing sweeter. And it's nothing I can do to make that happen. 
But there are times maybe when we're gathered in worship, when you're singing, when you're hearing the word read, when you're hearing it preached, whatever, when you're taking communion, there are times that God identifies with you and lets you know that you are his. And there's nothing better than that. Because, you know, one day they might lay my body, and they will. They lay my body in a tomb or in a casket, or my ashes will be put in front of a bunch of people. But it won't be me because I'll be gone. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I'll put off this tent, this temporary dwelling. I'll I'll shed it because mortality will be swallowed up by life. I love that passage in 2 Corinthians 5. Almost every time I speak at a funeral, I read that passage. This week, I've preached from it twice. There's nothing better than think about that. We want to get rid of it, not because we want to get rid of all the people and we want to leave this world. We want to get rid of it because we know when we lay this one down, we're getting one that's unlike anything we've ever known. We're taking off a temporary, mortal, fleshly body and putting on something spiritual and eternal that will never be destroyed, will never be sick again, will never be marred in any way. That's the hope that Christ gives us. That's the hope in the Exodus passage. That's the hope in Lazarus coming forth. It's, it's the hope of all the scriptures. It's the hope in Christ. So I'll leave that with you, and I trust that you believe in him, and that if you do, you'll believe in him more. And if you don't, you'll confess him to be your Lord. And be baptized, and let us celebrate with you that the Lord has brought you, like Lazarus, out of a tomb, of worldliness out of a tomb of dying and death into a world of light. Jesus said, if you're in darkness, you can't see it, but if you're in light, you see the light. It's kind of what he said in this passage here. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the truth of the gospel. And I pray that it's been faithfully heralded. And God, that you would save your people. I know you will. Encourage your people. I know you will do that as well. I don't preach so that people will walk away feeling guilty. I want to. I want them to see who they are in Christ and raise them up to that. That they can see there's no need to feel beaten down. There's no need to feel guilt. Jesus died for guilt and he died for sin. He died for all your shortcomings. All of us have that hope. So we thank you for it. And we're going to celebrate that even more as we take the cup and we drink of his blood and we eat of his body because it was by that our redemption came through that. Lord, you laid on him the iniquity of us all and we are so humbled by that. We celebrate that now through the supper in Jesus' name. Amen.